Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Whenever I talk to a group, I always like to start here because I want people to know what this is really all about, where this all goes. It's really all about Jesus. Matter of fact, everything's about Jesus. And how we must become less and less. He must become greater and greater. Well, I'm going to talk to you today about the geography of the life of Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound very exciting, but it gets exciting as you get into it. Uh, one thing I need to get out of the way right away, my last name really is Crossland. God has a sense of humor. Because my last name tells you what I do for a living. I take people to the land of the cross, either in virtual space or in actual space, and you'll find out what that means here in a second. I understand I'm also taking a group of people from this church to the land of Israel uh, this coming March. It's spring break. My wife and granddaughter are going to be here in the second service. She's 14 today. Today's her birthday, and she's been to Israel four times already, so this will be her fifth time. She's kind of like a veteran. First time she went, was, I think she was three years old when she first went. But if you want to find out more, you can um, go to our table in the back. We have two sign-up forms, by the way. One sign-up form says, um, I'm going on this trip. And another one says, I hope that I can go on this trip. We'd like you to fill out one of those two forms if you fall into one of those two categories. If you want to find out more about the trip, you can go to octagontours.com or octagonproject.com, either one, and then type in slash CTC, and that's your page. And on that page, what you're going to see is this. It's uh, information all about the Holy Land tour. We'll have a little video. There will be a downloadable form and registration form, which we have here. By the way, you can also sign up online if you want to. There's information about the pastor and Janet and some stuff about me and uh, some videos. And our entire itinerary, where we go, this is all about the walking path of Jesus. So we have a question and answer period. And you can find out anything you want to know from this website. Now, how many of you have been to Washington, D.C., to the Museum of the Bible? Anybody been there yet? Okay. Well, you'll, you'll want to go because they've got a virtual reality room. And in that room, you can actually go to Israel and walk around in virtual reality with these headsets. And our company produced that video for them. We've got about five museums, which are all um, showing our, our stuff around the world. And that's one of our biggest now, one of the things we're doing at this moment is we are creating a brand new app. It's going to be coming out um, in about a month, and it's called Overtour. Overtour is a way for people to go to the Holy Land in virtual space. You can actually walk around all the holy sites with your app or with your, with your cell phone. Like, for example, right here. This is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. What we did over a four-night period is we took laser scanners into this church, and we scanned literally every single corner of this church. Now, you don't see any tourists because we did this at night, between 8 o'clock at night and 5 o'clock in the morning over four nights. And a person can now go through this church and take a guided tour in about three hours, which is what I do when I take people there. I take about three hours to go through the church. Or... They can walk around wherever they want to go on their own and explore every corner by themselves. And the only person you're going to see is you and, of course, the voice of your guide and your own footsteps. Now, when you go to Israel, you're going to see this symbol on doorways and monasteries and churches. And you may not know what you're looking at, but let me tell you what this is. This is two Greek letters, the letter phi and the letter tau. That stands for Philicus Taufu, which translated means the guardians of the tomb. Now, that sounds like a Marvel comic book, but it's not. The guardians of the tomb is the oldest Christian brotherhood to ever exist. They coalesced in about 327 AD, and their purpose was to protect and preserve the holy sites and the memory of these holy sites, starting in Jerusalem and radiating outward from there. The interesting thing about these guys is they still exist. They are still here among us. There are about 90 of them. They wear all black. They're celibate. They never marry. They all live in Jerusalem in the same place, and they're at the Holy Sepulcher 24 hours a day guarding it. Now, 
I spend a lot of time in the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, most of the time I'm there, I'm there alone because I'm there at night. I get locked in between 8 o'clock at night and 5 o'clock in the morning because I'm there for filming. I do a lot of filming in Israel. As a matter of fact, I just caught back about, about two weeks ago. We spent about three weeks doing filming and capturing virtual reality assets and things like that. But when I go there, usually the only sound I can hear is the sound of my own breathing or my own footsteps. But one year I had a date with destiny. I had a 60-second relationship with a man who would change my life and my ministry, and it's the reason why I'm even here today. I want you to just look at that guy in the lower right-hand part of the screen. He is one of the guardians of the tomb. I didn't know it when I saw him, but I was going to find out. Here I am filming the Holy Sepulchre with a little cheap camera like a lot of people do when they go into the tomb and they do some filming. I'm speeding this up because it's irrelevant, but take a look at that same guy coming into the tomb. Now, he is going to be very quiet. He's going to go to the back of the tomb. He asks me ultimately where I'm from, and I said I'm from Texas. And I want you to take a look at him. Now, watch his left hand. He is going to grab that icon. He's going to pull it, and it happens to be hinged. And what he's about to tell me here is that these are the stones of the original tomb of Jesus Christ. Now, that tomb was destroyed in 1009 AD by a mad caliph from Egypt named Al-Hakam. I had heard for many years that this wall existed, but I didn't know you could access it this way. Well, I have a guide friend who'd been doing this for 25 years, and he did not know that this door existed. And he asked all of his other guide friends about this, and they didn't know it existed. And I'm now getting the impression that the only people who know that you can actually touch the original stones of the tomb of Jesus are the guardians of the tomb, and now me. So I'm asking myself, why am I here? And this sent me on a mission. What I wanted to do was find out everything that the guardians knew. I wanted to retrace the steps of Christ across Israel, and I wanted to capture it all on video so I could bring it back and show people what we had discovered. I wanted to, I wanted to walk the land and study literally every place where Jesus was, in as much detail as I could so that we could produce something that became this. Right now we're going to Hippos. There's an easier way to get up there, and that's driving. But we're not going the easy way. We're going the way Jesus went. There are 94 geographic sites in the Holy Land that are referred to in the Gospels. Over a seven-year period, my wife and I went to literally every single one of them, and even the roads that Jesus traveled on to get from one place to the next are roads that we went on to go to those same locations. I found out later on that no person in the modern world had ever done this before. And we didn't just go to 94 sites, we went to over 200 sites and looked at them from every angle, and we, at that time, didn't know why we were doing this. We were just following our nose. We, didn't, we thought it was going to be something like a, a curriculum of some sort or maybe um, a, a video tour or a video presentation or something like that. We really didn't know. And we didn't know until two years ago why we had done all of this. When we began a new company called OverX, in which we were now going to take people to the Holy Land in virtual space. Now, I have to tell you about this, because this is where it all began. I'm a Bible translator. I translate Greek to English. I teach Greek in seminary. And um, I, uh, I used to teach a Sunday school class in Oklahoma City. It was a large class, about 150 people. And it was called the Merged Gospels. And I was teaching through the life of Jesus in chronological order, which is a challenge in itself. And to tell the story of Jesus and to tell all the stories, and there were about 299 stories, I had to merge them together. Well, that became a chore. I sequestered myself for about four years. I was actually paid to go into hibernation for four years to produce this book. Why did I write the Merge Gospels? Well, it became the field manual for everything that we did. Every one of our tours to Israel and every one of our tours online at OverX is going to be based on the Merge Gospels. Well, here's why I did this. First of all, I found out that the Gospels, and most of you know this, none of the Gospels carry all the same stories. If you took all the stories in the Gospels and put them together, you'd have something about twice the size of any one Gospel. The second problem was that Jesus is quoted differently in parallel passages from one Gospel to the next. Same story, but the words are slightly different. And so to try to discover what his actual words were, we had to merge the Gospels together and try to get back to the actual source.
Then we found out that many details in individual stories are different or not even there. You have some stories where there's a long rendition in Luke, but a short rendition of it in Matthew, and Luke has more than Matthew does. So we had to merge them together to be able to come up with the actual story. And then the chronological order between all the Gospels is different. In fact, not one of the Gospels is entirely exactly in all chronological order. So we had to chronologize them that way. Now, I've got copies of this book here today, and of course the audio book, that's a dramatic recitation of the Merge Gospels. Let me show you what I did. In Greek, I took all four Gospels and broke them down into four columns corresponding to the four Gospels, still in the Greek, and then I broke them down word by word. I tore the Gospels down word by word, and then what we did is we pushed those four columns to the right into that gray column, and in the process of doing that, we eliminated the duplicated content. So someone can now read through that merged column in what we call the parallel version and read through all four Gospels without missing anything in 60% the time because only the duplicated content was removed. Well, that gray column was reformatted into a way that looks and reads like a normal Bible. So someone can actually do hardcore Bible study in the parallel version or they can do casual Bible reading in the, what we call the harmonized version, which is what our audiobook is based on. And in that way, they can read through the entire life of Jesus, understand it completely, not one word of scripture is removed, and they can do it in 60% of the time. Now, when I, we sell these, of course, um, in, in bookstores around the country and, and online, and when we do, we sell them for $30, plus shipping, that ends up being about $35. But when I go to speak somewhere, we don't sell the book. What we do is we let people just pay whatever they want. I, whenever I talk, I, I suspect people want to walk out with a copy, but we didn't want anybody to get away here today without having a copy if you want one. So whatever you put on the table is what the book costs, okay? And if that's free, that's what it costs, okay? Just, this is how we support our ministry. So, and, and that includes the audio book, and it includes as many copies as you want. Okay? So you can have it, it's back at the table. Now, let's get into this. I want to talk about these four guys first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, independent biographers of Jesus' life within one generation after he lived, which is huge in history. But I want to talk about this too, the fifth gospel. Now, what is that? That's actually this. It's the land itself. The land of Jesus tells its own version of the gospel. And when you layer that version of the gospel onto the other four, your knowledge about Jesus is so much more heightened, so much more augmented. You understand it a whole lot more because, you see, all your life you have heard pastors preach, you've read the Bible, you've heard Bible stories, and your mind tries to um, put together this construct, this, this idea of what these things actually looked like. And then when you go there, you get a chance to see what you've heard about all your life. And suddenly, this becomes not like a vacation, like you, you know, go somewhere and you take pictures and you have bragging rights and memories fade. This stays with you for the rest of your life. Why is that? Because this is your spiritual home. This is not just a place you go because you like it. This is what you are. This defines you. And so you come back and now this is with you forever. This is why we call it a pilgrimage. It's not necessarily a vacation. And everywhere we go, about 75% of all the sites that Jesus visited, that's where we go. It's really different. It's not like another Holy Land tour. We wanted to focus on where Jesus was, where he walked, where he taught, and where he did his miracles. Now, we had a lot of surprises along the way. For example, when we found human remains, we were digging inside the walls of the um, Church of the Visitation where Mary gave her Magnificat. We found a mass grave of bones under the Garden of Gethsemane. The people who worked at Gethsemane didn't even know this existed. And we found it there as part of a, actually a monastery that was once there. Here we found the tomb of Joseph in Nazareth. My son and I discovered about 11 years ago, this is the oldest altar ever to be found anywhere in the Holy Land. A lot of people don't know this. The shepherds that uh, were there on the night that Jesus was born they stuck around, and their tomb is still here. It's at the Orthodox Church of the Shepherd's Field in, in Bet Sauer. 
I decided I wanted to go where David was in the Valley of Elah because he killed Goliath with a smooth stone that he found in a creek bed, and I wanted to find that creek bed, so I did, and here I am, and the stones are still smooth. And so we, we're gathering up all these smooth stones from the creek bed in the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. In the cave of the ten lepers, that church is still there, one of the oldest churches in the world, and here we are examining remains, human remains that we found in sarcophagi in the, in the basement, or in the actual the floor of this church when they were tearing it up. We discovered that the Magi, when they escaped from Herod's view and went back to their own country by a different way, they walked for about four miles under the cover of night, and then when daylight came, they said, we got to hide somewhere. And so the tradition is that they found a cave uh, at a place called this, now called the Monastery of Theodosius, and here my son and I are examining the cave where the Magi hid the night that they escaped from Herod. Now, here we are. Some of you have been here, or you've seen pictures of this. This is the birthplace of Jesus in the Church of the Nativity. What a lot of people don't know, I can tell you what most people, all people, don't know, is that behind that curtain on the left side, there is a wall. And that's all they know. What they don't know is this. I had heard for many years that there was a place called the Infant Bath of Jesus, where Jesus received his first bath, because you know he did. Well, we went to the Church of the Nativity, and we asked everybody, all the priests and everybody, where's the infant bath of Jesus? Nobody knew anything about it. In fact, the guy who ran the church, he's called the guardian, the father superior at that church, he didn't know anything about it, so he went into what we call the sacristy, got a key. We went down into the crypt of this church, and he starts checking doors, and one of those keys opens one of those doors, and when we walked in, we saw this. This is a hallway that will take you to an ancient cistern. There's Byzantine engravings on that cistern indicating that the early church believed that this was a holy place. And that wall on the right side, if you go about two or three meters over, that's the star. That's the place where Jesus was born. But anybody now going to the church of the nativity in the grotto of the nativity doesn't even know that this place exists. This is, by tradition, the place where Jesus received his first bath in that cistern right there. Now, you've all heard about the murder, the slaughter of the innocent baby boys in Bethlehem. That's what the gospel says. There isn't much written about it in the gospels, but what does the fifth gospel say? What does the land say? The land says that 150 years ago, there was a cemetery discovered right outside the Church of the Nativity. And in that cemetery, they discovered that there were hastily buried the remains of infants, and they discovered them, they pulled them out, exhumed them, and put them in this case. These are 2,000-year-old baby boys in this case. When we take you to Israel, you're going to see it. It's called the Chapel of the Holy Innocents, and there you can see, I'm going to zoom in right there on some of what you can see there. Now, as you can imagine, if you were one of the parents of these boys, you didn't like the fact that someone was snatching your child out of your arms, so the parents probably suffered the same fate that their kids did which is why we also discovered this. It's a mass grave of the parents who also fought off the soldiers to protect their babies. Now, there's a silent part of Jesus' life between the time that he was 12 years old and the time that he was 30. Nothing is written in the Gospels about that. But what does the land say? Under the convent of the Sisters of Nazareth is a crypt. And in that crypt, there is a 7th century French monk named Arculf who went there and wrote his memoirs, and the townspeople back then told him that this is where Jesus spent 27 years of his life. We have no other candidates, no other archaeological sites that are, are, are competing for this, and so we have no archaeological reason to deny that this is actually the place. And if it is, we spent about five hours here filming and, and taking measurements and photographs and stuff like that inside what is understood to be the place where Jesus grew up and spent 27 years of his life. In the country of Jordan, there is a town called Madaba, and in that church, uh, town, there's a church called the Church of St. George. And when that church was built in the 6th century, the entire floor was a mosaic. It was the oldest map of the Holy Land ever produced. Well, most of it is still there, and on that floor, there's a very mysterious little icon. You can see it there in the middle. I'm going to zoom in right on it there. Now, that's right near the River Jordan. It looks kind of like a 
like a hill or something with a door or a cave or something like that in it. Well, that little icon led us to this place right here. This is the hill upon which Elijah was taken up when he was carried up into heaven in a chariot of fire. John the Baptist knew this. John the Baptist knew from a very early age that he was going to preach in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And every time we have a sighting for John the Baptist, and there are three of them in Scripture, he is following in the footsteps of Elijah. He wants to minister in the same places that were significant to the life of Elijah. That being the case, the first place we see him is this place right here where Elijah was taken up into heaven. And that's where he wanted to start his ministry. So he found a cave inside this hill. And he lived in that cave, and the first time you hear him preaching in his ministry, he is living and preaching near that cave. Matter of fact, if you use your imagination, you can actually see John the Baptist standing right near the cave that was hollowed out by the Byzantine church so that they could create a chapel. It's called the Cave Chapel now, near the Hill of Elijah, or right actually under it. In the city of Jerusalem... There's a very old church, one of the oldest churches in the world, called the Church of St. John the Baptist. We've been there, and one thing we found when we were there is this. Skull fragments of John the Baptist. We didn't actually find these. They were found centuries ago, actually millennia ago. And I, I personally believe this is true because I've watched, I've, I've kind of tracked historically where the body and the head of John the Baptist went after he died. Matter of fact, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's this real cool place occasionally we get a chance to take people in there, sometimes we don't, but sometimes we do, and in there is the cranium or the skull cap of John the Baptist. It's not on display like it's trying to lure people there, it's there hidden, it's in a treasure room, it's in a vault, and we got a chance to go in and photograph all these things. They have wood, that's my finger there, they have wood that is believed to be from the true cross of Jesus. Well, we know that that cross was splintered and sent all over the world, and that's one piece right there. You even see things like the fingers of Luke and the apostles of Bartholomew and Apostle Andrew. You've heard the story of the woman at the well. This is a story, it's the longest story in the gospel, and it takes one whole chapter to tell the story. It's the story about a woman who's a sinner woman. First of all, she's a Samaritan. She's a sinner, and she is uh, a, a, a woman. So she got three strikes against her in the patriarchal society of Judaism, but she is the very first person to whom Jesus declares that he is the Messiah. Jesus honors women like Mary Magdalene on and on and on. He's always honoring women, and in this case, he did that as well. Well, the well which she's fishing in is Jacob's well, dug by Jacob the patriarch. When we go to the Holy Land, you're going to get a chance to go there. It's in the West Bank. It's in a place called Nablus, and Jacob's well is there, and we drink from that well like Jesus did. We can actually sit on that right side of that little well there. You can actually sit there. Jesus sat there, and he drank from that well, and we drink from that well as well, and you can too when you go. In this church, they also have a skull fragment of this woman. She was called Saint Fotini. Fotini was the name given to her. We don't know what her real name was, but Fotini means the enlightened one. And if you can believe it, they also have this, the vase that she brought to that well when she was fetching water. Now, Jesus preached something. I'm going to jump to the Merge Gospels here in a moment and the land because this is important. When you read this story in the Merge Gospels, you get it. If you read it, like most people read the Gospels in series or sequentially or like spot reading like most people do, but when you read the Gospels in merged format, suddenly things come to the surface that you've never seen before. Whole sermons are built on this kind of stuff. Well, here's one of them. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount there at the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5-7 through 7, is when the Sermon on the Mount took place. It's the most famous sermon in the world. This is what it says. He went up to the mountain. Okay? So in other words, the Sermon on the Mount is something that Jesus preached that he had to climb to to get to. Okay? Now, in the Gospel of Luke, there are a few verses in the sixth chapter which are excerpts of the same sermon. A lot of scholars believe that these are one and the same sermon. They are excerpts, excerpts of the same sermon. And yet Luke starts out this way. And coming down with them, he stood on a level place. And then he preaches the sermon. And so suddenly the critics are, are thinking, wait a minute, we have a mistake here. We have a contradiction. 
Uh, is the sermon something that you climb up to get to and preach, or is it something you go down to to preach? Well, actually, both of them are true, but you wouldn't know that until you get there, and we're going to take you there. I'm going to take you to the actual spot where this happened so that you can know that this is true. First of all, to walk up, you have to take this path. Now, that is the very same path that Jesus walked on. We have a couple of places where that path crosses over a bunch of rocks, and you know that when you step on those rocks, Jesus walked on those rocks. What we try to do is put you in his three-foot circle as many times as possible so that you can get the, the, the notion of what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus when he was alive on this earth. But the very first thing you come to is this place right here. Now, this is called the Aramos Cave or the Wilderness Cave. We believe that Jesus, because in the Gospel of Luke, it says he, that he prayed all night long before he preached this sermon, like Pastor Doug does every Saturday night when he preaches. He always stays up all night long and prays, I'm sure. Uh, but he, Jesus prayed all night long before he preached this sermon. Well, he must have prayed somewhere. Well, there was a pilgrim, a lady from Spain in 381 AD named Egeria. She came to this place, and the local people told her that this is where Jesus prayed all night long before he preached that sermon. So what do we do when we go to the Holy Land and take you there? We're going to go inside that cave. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray. Because everything that Jesus did when he was in a certain place, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the upper room. We're going to take communion in the upper room. When he taught the Lord's Prayer on the Mount of Olives, we're going to go there and go through the Lord's Prayer. Well, here at the Mount of Beatitudes, we go through the Beatitudes. I mean, everything, we, we want to replicate the experience of being a disciple of Jesus 2,000 years ago. So anyway, we go inside this cave. We're going to pray there. Then we go a little farther up the hill. Now, We get to this place that has a monument. We're not going to stay there for very long. And the reason we're not is because Jesus didn't. What Jesus did is he went a little farther. Now, you can see a ridge there. That's called the Aramos Heights. Another name is the Harnam, which is, means the mountain of Nam. And it's called the Aramos Highlands. And you can see it right there. And you can see some white parts there. There's some rocks up there. Let me tell you what that is. Jesus appointed his 12 apostles on that ridge at the Aramos Heights. He named them. Every time you see a list of the apostles in the Synoptic Gospels of the names of the apostles, that's where that happened. He appointed them on that ridge. Now, he didn't go over the other side of the ridge because it says that he saw the crowds coming to him from below. So it says that he, oh, by the way, let me show you this. There's an artist's rendition of that very same spot where he appointed the apostles. Now, when he saw the crowds coming to him, it says that he descended the mountain, and then he started healing them. He first healed them of their diseases. Now, look right there. I am walking down the Aramos Heights. Do you see that level place down there? It's kind of like a spur on the side of the hill. That's the level place that Luke talks about. So in other words, both Matthew and Luke are true because the Sermon on the Mount was preached at a place that you did have to actually walk up to, as you saw us do in the beginning. But now it's a place that you descend to to preach. Both of them are actually true. And you'll see when you get there. But I'm going to zoom in right about there. Let's tighten that picture right there. Let's do that again. Go right there. And that's it. That is the site of the Sermon on the Mount. Now... That monument right there, somebody put that monument there because they felt that that was the place also where Jesus preached or gave them the Great Commission. I kind of believe that. I kind of believe that it's the same mountain. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, he said, go to the mountain, go to a certain mountain. He didn't tell them what. But they, when they went to that mountain, he, the Gospel of Mark says that he sent them out to preach. That's where they were sent. But in the same mountain, he called them apostles, which means the sent ones. And Mark says at that time, and he sent them out to preach. Mark's talking about the same thing in both cases. I have a feeling that when Jesus sent them to a certain mountain, he sent them to the same mountain where he called them apostles, the sent ones, because the Great Commission is all about going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, when Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which we will also go to, we'll go to this place. 
That is the synagogue where Jesus grew up. And when he was an adult, he came back and he was preaching out of Isaiah, but he kind of riled up the people because he was giving a little bit too much deference to the Gentiles, and they got pretty upset, so they wanted to kill him. Well, that synagogue is right here. You can see me there. Um, the original synagogue is not there. This is a crusader construct, but it's the same place. Latitude and longitude, same place. Well, what they did is they took him to the top of a hill where the, where the gospel says they wanted to throw him headlong. Over 2,000 years, people had forgotten where that spot was. They didn't know. Because Nazareth had grown so much, urban development looked like it had completely erased that cliff until we got a hold of some very old photographs and some engravings and started to study the land and walked around the buildings and went into alleyways and things like that. And we eventually found that cliff. It's only 150 meters away from where the synagogue was. Back in Jesus' day, it was a 60-foot sheer drop. Now it's about a 40-foot gradual drop. But it's the same place. It's the city on which the Bible says, on which it's the, the cliff on which their city was built. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually more like a lake, there's a miracle that happened, which we're going to take you to as well, called the miracle of the swine, when Jesus cast the demons uh, from the demoniacs into the pigs, and they ran off and went into the, into the lake. Well, I had never heard of anybody who had actually been in those tombs. They're very hard to get to because you have to go through a forest of stinging nettles to get to them. I was there alone one year, and I figured, why not? So I went up into these tombs and actually got inside one of them. I took a picture of myself doing that, and here I am on the inside. I showed you this picture to show you that. That is an animal dropping. It's fresh. It's very large. I found out the guy who made that is this guy right here. I didn't want to make his acquaintance and get to know him any more than, than that, what he left behind, so uh, you can understand that my time in that cave was going to be very brief. Let's talk about the Merge Gospels for a second. I told you that there are things that you will read in the Merge Gospels when they suddenly get merged together, and you don't have to jump around to see this. You can actually see it because they're put together. Suddenly something happens and you realize something that you've never seen before. Some truths that you can, news you can use starts to come at you. And one of them is right here. Jesus washed the apostles' feet in the upper room. This is the most important lesson on humility ever taught, where the Son of God is actually washing the feet of his servants. Well, I want to read it to you right here. This is from John 13, 4. He rose from the supper and laid down his garments, and taking a towel, he wrapped himself. Afterward, he put water into the basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, that happened right here in the upper room. This is not the original decor of the upper room. Same location, it's just that the crusaders and then ultimately the Muslims came along and they had their way with it, and it, it looks the way it looks now. But this is where Jesus gave his last supper. We are going to go into this room when we go to Israel, and we are going to serve communion. We're the only group in Israel that actually serves communion in the upper room, if you can believe that. Pastor Doug, you're going to serve communion in the very same place that, that the last supper was begun. The first last supper, you're going to serve communion there in that room. And you all can take communion in that room. But I need to ask you a question, which is going to sound a little irrelevant for a moment, and it's this. Where did Jesus get the water? Now, your initial reaction is going to be, who cares? What does it matter? I mean, that's not the point of the story anyway. The point of the story is teaching the world's most famous lesson on humility. But when you merge the Gospels together, suddenly it does become important. So I need to ask that again. Where did Jesus get the water? Well, the story of Jesus washing the feet of the apostles comes from the Gospel of John, only from the Gospel of John. But if you want to know where the water came from, you've got to go to two other Gospels, actually three, but two have the actual statement I'm talking about. Earlier that same day, earlier that same day, and here's what happened. I'm going to go ahead and show you where in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, Jesus got the water. It'll be important in a second. 
Read it here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It says, And his disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, and he said to them, Behold, when you go into the city to a certain man, he will meet you, now watch this, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And into the house that he enters, you will say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house. We know this house was in a very wealthy part of the city of Jerusalem in the upper city in Mount Zion, where Jerusalem actually was covering Mount Zion at that time. We know that the person who owned this home had two servants. We know that one of her servants uh, was a woman named Rhoda. We hear, hear her name in the uh, 12th chapter of the book of Acts. But she had a male servant. And this male servant went down to the pool of Siloam to fetch water that day. That very same day. And now here he is bringing water up to this place where Jesus is ultimately going to use that water to wash the feet of the apostles. Now, if this were a Facebook meme, it would read like this. Super huge mega saints, and then you. Now, personally, I'm going to have a tough time being one of these two guys over in the right-hand side, but I think I'd kind of like to be this guy over here. And if you know what's good for you, you're going to want to be that guy too, because take a look at him. He has no face. You don't know who he is. He's got no name. He's got no reputation. In fact, he probably didn't even know what he was doing. He probably didn't know that he was the one providing the tools by which Jesus could teach this lesson. But he becomes the eyes and the ears and the feet and the hands and the mouth of Jesus for a moment and didn't know at that moment because God is so big that he can be so small and so silent, he can act undetected by you but using you and he's got a lot of pieces on this chessboard. And this is one of them. And if you want to be this guy, then just be available. Be a servant, or as the Bible calls it, a doulos, a bond slave. And like him, you are going to go down in history as not going down in history at all. But in fact, the only reputation that's going to survive is the one who suffered this. The man who was beaten at the court of flagellation there on that on that pillar. That's the one that we glorify. Matter of fact, see that pillar right there? I was in the attic of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre one year and discovered this by accident. This is the pillar against which Jesus was beaten when he was flogged by the Roman soldiers. Not many people have seen this. It's because it has never been on display. And they just redecorated this, this chapel so only Armenian people can actually see it. Now, we have something called... The way of the cross, the Via Dolorosa. Jesus walked down the Via Dolorosa, and he carried the cross. There's only one statement that says, and he went out bearing his cross. That's what the gospel says. But what does the land say? Well, the land wants to talk about this, the fifth gospel. What is that? That's called the judgment gate. The judgment gate is what Jesus walked through when he walked out of the city of Jerusalem and saw for the first time the place where he would give up his life, where he would take his last breath at the hill of Golgotha. But over the centuries, the judgment gate was dis disappeared. I mean, urban development had completely erased where this was. It was on the western side of the city of Jerusalem, and nobody knows where the judgment gate was. So we got a hold of a very old map. I'm going to zoom in here and show you the date on this. 1666. And inside, that map looks like this. And I want to zoom right in there. Now, it's written in Latin, but you can see it there. It says the judgment gate. And over here is Mount Golgotha, where Jesus died. Well, in 2017, there was a wall knocked out in the seventh station of the cross, and for the first time, people got a chance to see this. This is the gate that Jesus walked through. And when you are standing here, you are standing on the very same place, about maybe eight feet higher than it was back in his day, but this is the very same spot where Jesus took the cross outside the city of Jerusalem where he first saw the hill of Golgotha. He didn't first see it then, but he saw it then, and he knew that's where he was going to die. And you can, we're going there too, by the way. Now, this is the Chapel of Calvary at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's an interesting verse about this death of Jesus. It says that the earth shook and the rocks were split. There was an earthquake. When Jesus died, there was an earthquake. So I want to go back to this right here, and I want to zoom in on this little part here. This is the summit of Mount Golgotha. 
Mount Golgotha, by the way, still exists. It's 30 feet tall. I've been to it. There's a secret door in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where you can go back through that door and you can see the whole mountain. Tourists don't see it, but all you get to see, you, you can see this right here, but, but this is the top. Now, look at that summit. There's a crack in that rock. Now, people think, okay, that's, the rocks were split. That's one of the cracks. In the fourth century, when Christianity became legal, Christians came in and they wanted to build a chapel. They wanted to hollow out all of Golgotha and build a chapel in there. So they, they called that the Church of Golgotha. Today we call it the Chapel of Adam. But then when they, when they hollowed it out, they found that this crack went all the way through the mountain. You can see an artist rendition of it here. So what the Byzantine Christians did is they built this chapel, the Chapel of Golgotha, and they put a window in it so that you could see the crack as it went down through the entire mountain. Now the critics say, we don't have any evidence that there was a, 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 an earthquake. Where's the evidence? Where's, where's the proof that there was actually an earthquake back then? Well, that proof came in the May edition of the International Geology Review. I'm going to show you this here. This is not a Christian publication, by the way. This is a secular publication. It says they were doing some work about 13 miles from Jerusalem. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let's go to the end of the article here. It says that an early first century seismic event happened sometime between 26 A.D. and 36 A.D. And this is where science is now proving that what we have been reading all along in the Gospels is true. Now, I've asked myself many, for many years, I, I was always wondering, where's the Rolling Stone? Nobody knows where it is. I mean, where, the Rolling Stone that was in the, the angel move, that was in front of the tomb of Jesus. We know that the door must have been pretty large, and when you go into the Bible, you read this, and looking up, they saw the stone that had been rolled back from the tomb. This is what the women saw, although it was extremely large. When you go into the Holy Sepulchre Church today, you go into a place called the Chapel of the Angel, and you see this little one-foot-by-one-foot one tile of limestone under glass, and you look at that, and you say, um, that's pretty small. And the rolling stone must have been larger than that. Where's the proof that there actually was a rolling stone, that there actually was a tomb here? Is there any proof at all? Or are we just believing a myth? So I started to do some research and found out that that rolling stone, the big piece, actually had been lying outside the chapel of the angel for a number of centuries, and then it was moved and created it into an altar there inside the church of the Holy Sepulchre, and then poof, it was gone. It disappears from the pages of history. So I started to do some interviews in Jerusalem, and my research took me here to a 12th century monastery an abandoned monastery under lock and key and guard on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. What I'm going to show you right now, you have probably never seen a picture of, and I can assure you, you've never known anybody who has been there. This is the Rolling Stone that covered the tomb of Jesus. I am absolutely convinced this is it. Let me talk a little bit about that. You can see that it's flat on the top. That's because it was hewn to lay flat against the quarry wall that that tomb was built in. It's rectangular in shape for the most part because the door was, and you don't need a whole lot of stone to be able to cover a rectangular door. But as you can see, the ends are round. So in fact, it does actually roll, even though it's rectangular in shape and fits perfectly over the size of the door of the tomb of Jesus. So after looking at this thing for a number of hours, we took hundreds of photographs of this. We came to the conclusion this, in fact, was real because it was put here in the seventh century and no one has seen it since. Very few people, I'm put it that way. They, they built a church around it, but not too many people that get in there. Now, I'm gonna end by talking about this. I've, I mentioned the Merge Gospels. This is one of the things the Merge Gospels will show you and demonstrate, but I preach this everywhere, and, and literally every place I've gone, the pastors always come up to me and they say, I never saw this before. Well, that's probably because you didn't read it in merge format. If you do, you'll see what I'm about to tell you. This is the site of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if you take all of the clues and all of the hints and all of the vectors that are given to us in Scripture, you can come to no other conclusion than the feeding of the 5,000 happened right here on the southwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. This is called Harmenarim. It's a mountain range on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And an artist's rendition of that place would look like this right here. Now, if you turn 180 degrees, you'll see the Sea of Galilee. The very last thing that Jesus said to these men 
was get in this boat and go across the lake. When we go there, we're going to show you a first century boat. It's identical to the ones that they were in, not the same one, but similar to it. And I would like to read to you from the Merge Gospels. Now, we've got to jump around a little bit. To tell the story in chronological order, every gospel has part of the story, but not everybody has all of it. So we're going to jump around and tell you all of it. First of all, let's start here. From the Gospel of Mark, now keep your eyes open because there's going to be a little test here. Immediately, he compelled his disciples to go into the boat and to go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the crowds away. Now we're going to jump over to the Gospel of John. He's got the rest of the story. His disciples went down to the sea, and they entered into the boat. Okay, now the next part is told in three Gospels. And after bidding them farewell, and after he had sent the crowds away, he departed and went up again to the mountain alone by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was alone on the land. Now the next part comes just from John. But they were going over the sea to Capernaum, and darkness had already come, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, here's the test. Did you spot the problem? Did you notice a contradiction, a discrepancy? Let me show it to you. From the book of Mark, immediately he compelled his disciples to go into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. Then from John, but they were going over the sea to Capernaum. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you right now, but it will in 10 seconds. The feeding of the 5,000 is right here. Bethsaida is right here. Capernaum is right here. That's a difference of three miles. Jesus told them to go there. Now, there is no way, no way at all, you can conclude anything other than they were disobeying Jesus. From the time that he told them to get into the boat and to go to Bethsaida, that's the last thing he said, between that and when he came walking on the water, which is what happened next, they made the decision to go over to Capernaum. Now, there's actually a perfectly good logical reason they said that, and let me tell you why it is. And the sea began to be stirred up, and a strong wind was blowing. Therefore, when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, the boat was in the middle of the sea, away from the land, battered by the waves. 25 or 30 stadia, that's a distance of a little over three miles. And he was seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was contrary to them. That's an important word. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. I think it's interesting that here he is three miles away, middle of the night, four o'clock in the morning, the fourth watch of the night. That's between three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning. It wasn't dark when they got in the boat, so that's about nine hours. They were rowing for nine hours, and they went for three miles. That's one-third mile an hour. That's a slow boat to nowhere. And it says that he saw them straining at the oars. Now, how does that work? Here he is, like three miles away, middle of the night, blustery conditions, and he's seeing them, straining at the oars. Well, you know full well why, he's, why he knows they're straining at the oars. But there's a very good reason why they decided to go to Capernaum. And it's this. When you go to the land, you learn that when blustery, threatening, violent conditions come upon the Sea of Galilee, they always come from the northeast, from a place called the Golan Heights. Well, where is he sending them out from? From the southwest. And he tells them to go where? To Bethsaida. So in other words, he is telling them to row into the wind. Now, it wasn't blowing when they got into the boat, otherwise they'd have an issue then. Sometime after they got into the boat, all these conditions start to blow, and now they're thinking, well, Jesus didn't see this coming. I mean, here he tells us to go to Bethsaida, so he's got something going on there, but he didn't know this was going to happen. They come off this big miracle, you know, like they're feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and now suddenly they're not expecting a miracle. So what they decide to do, they decide to tack a little bit to the left to go to Capernaum, because that's, that you can do, that, that's going to happen. Now, Capernaum is where most of them actually live, so they think, well, we're going to go home. That's easy. That's an easy decision to make, and it makes perfect sense until you go back and play the tape backward and realize that Jesus told you to go to Bethsaida for a reason. 
and they weren't expecting a miracle. Now, this is the lesson I want to leave you with. Row against the wind. When Jesus tells you to do something and you feel in your heart that's the right thing to do and then circumstances tell you something completely different, row against the wind. Pastor Doug, I'm sure as long as you've been in the ministry, you probably know of many times when God tells you to do something, not just in your heart, but even here in this leather-bound book where there's a lot of things Jesus says to do or not to do, and you look at it and you say, that's a great idea, but then circumstances tell you something completely different. And now you say, oh, it's going to be too hard. Oh, what about my reputation? What are people going to think? And logic tells you something completely different. But Jesus says, row against the wind. You see, he knew that they were going to have headwinds. He knew that they were going to be rowing directly into the storm. And by the way, after nine hours, when they're in the middle of the lake, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and they've spent every calorie. They are wasted. They have come upon a circumstance that is now impossible. They can't do it. You know what it's, you know what it's time for? It's miracle time. Because when God tells you to do something and you can't do it, he can. It's miracle time. When God gives you an order, either in your heart, and maybe you don't trust your heart because maybe you thought you had too much pepperoni pizza the last night, but in this book right here, when he tells you to do something, that's go to Bethsaida. And that's what you do. And when you get to the middle of the lake and you are completely spent, it's miracle time. I know you're not going to go any farther, but he is. How many miracles happened in the last 24 hours? The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking in the water, Peter walking on the water, the calming of the storm, and now here's the clincher. It says when he calmed the storm, he got into the boat, and get this now, immediately they were on the shore of where they were going. Immediately. It took them nine hours to get to this place, and then the same distance to get to the shore, and now they're there immediately. How many miracles do you need to realize that when Jesus says, row against the wind, that's what you do? And when you can't go any farther, it's miracle time. Believe that. Well, my time's up. When we take you to Israel, we're going to get in a boat. And we're going to go to that very spot. And we're going to tell you that story again. And for all the people who are going to go with us. Thank you so much. For, for listening. Um, I'll see you at the, um, at the table. If you have any questions, we have registration forms. We've got brochures for you for the tour. We've got uh, uh, little sign-up forms if you want to go. And uh, then go online to octagontours.com CT and get all the information about the tour there. Okay? Thank you for your attention. Pastor Doug. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.